Would you please take your Bibles? God's very holy, very pure, very powerful word, and turn in them to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab a pew Bible. I think it's important, particularly this morning as we think about the whole letter, to just see some of the truths there. Page 983 in a pew Bible, I think they're all consistent. Always exciting for me, maybe more exciting for me than for you, when we start studying another book of God's 66 revelations to us of himself, but I'm always uh, anticipating what I will learn new and fresh and deeper about God, about his son, Jesus Christ, about the gospel, and all the news about him, and about God's instruction for, from his wisdom and will for the good of our lives. Pastorally, I see each book we study as a unique season in our church's life where God has very specific things to teach us that are intended to transform us and to mold us and to make us more his bride that he is coming for. So I hope you're excited. I hope you're more curious about what you're going to learn from Colossians than about who the next head coach of the University of Nebraska's football team will be. Let's be honest. Or whatever else trips your trigger. I pray that, or I encourage you to be praying that God will use this book over the course of the coming weeks and months that we delve into it. And just want to encourage you again, you see this from me in every email if you open them, preparing beforehand when you come to know what already the text says, perhaps to have thought through it, whether it's the prompts I give you or just you digging in. Maybe even getting as radical as listening to a podcast on it or opening a commentary on it. Pondering while we're going through it and long after, I hope, which is really what helps us memorize. All of us, me included, who say memorizing scripture is really hard for me. One of the ways, one of the best ways to help in that is to Meditate on it to put your visual prompts and your other prompts out that help you think about it and work on it far beyond just a time before you're going to meet with somebody that you have to recite it to. But remember also that Psalm 119 teaches us that the way we keep our way pure in this very, very evil and dark and filthy world is to hide his word in our hearts that we would not sin against him. So, let me urge you, memorize as much of these truths as you possibly can. Push yourself on that. Do it as a family. Do it as a couple. Um, let's hide these truths in our hearts. Or, as Colossians 3.16 will tell us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it take up residence. Be at home inside of you. Living, moving, active, blessing, and setting up rule in order to have its way in you and to change and transform you. And Colossians 3.16 goes on to say, 
then teach and admonish one another. That's one of the one another's. So may Colossians be something in our church's body life that is vibrant, dynamic, actively at work. May we, when we look at the last word on the last Sunday that we do this together, be different people, more like our Savior. May Christ be more preeminent in all that we say and do. Just a reminder, I don't have a lot of time, but I wanted to put Psalm 19 up there just to remind us of all the things in that little middle of that psalm that it promises God's word does for us and descriptors of what it is. And at the end of that description, David says that we should desire these words of God, this law, this testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the rules, they should be desired more than money. We should want these more than all the money in the world. We should want these more than the best honey. It's better tasting. It's healthier food for us and better for us. And Jeremiah just captured that theme when he talked about the long lost words when Israel found them, that he ate them, like he consumed them. He wanted to digest them and let them do their full work in him. And when he ate them is when they become, became a joy and a delight to his heart. Sam Storms, in his introduction of uh, 100 Meditations on Colossians, uh, highly recommend that to you if you want something to meditate on Colossians along the way. He covers it a lot more thoroughly than I do in uh, far fewer sessions. Sam says this, we love the scriptures because they lead us to Christ. We are assiduous in our reading of God's word because therein we see the beauty of God revealed in his son. Therein we taste the soul-satisfying sweetness of his redemptive blessings. Therein we experience the sin-slaying power of his indwelling presence. He is our exceeding great war reward. Oh, what an excellent attainment there is in a thorough knowledge of divine truth. In a time where many, many, many churches and many, many professing Christ followers are moving away from the authority of the word and the sufficiency of God's word, we at First Street are going to lean in even more and trust it and obey it, and align our lives by it. So may the word work powerfully. Now, at the same time that we say that, Jesus' warning words to the religious leaders are good for us to hear here. In John 5, 39 to 40, he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, particularly the law. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to, three key words, come to me that you may have life. It's very possible to love the Bible and not love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very possible to know the Bible and not know Jesus Christ. And be saved. While the Bible contains the words of life, it is Christ who imparts and gives eternal life by faith in Him 
in what the word tells us about him. And we just can't get that out of the order. So, the book of Colossians, the reason I chose it, and I did preach through this in 2012. Uh, so, this is my second run at this. Hopefully, it's better. Those of you that were here in 2012 can uh, attest to whether it is or not. Uh, but it was intriguing to me that about two-thirds of the adults who are in our body now were not here in 2012. So many, many, many of you were not here. Now, you may have come from a church that has studied it more recently, but the reason I chose it early was because it is, has such a focus on Christ and his preeminence and sufficiency, as you can see on the slide, and 60-some uh, references to him in this letter. But... Uh, because I think we are at a season in our life, body life, where it's good, healthy, necessary for us to remember these truths. Here's a few other people's perspective on this book. It is one of the most thoroughly Christ-centered books in the Bible. It proclaims the preeminence of Jesus with as much richness and depth as anything we find in Scripture. Somebody else. What's special about Colossians is not just its doctrine. What's special about it is its dimensions. Paul's statements in Colossians about Christ are truly colossal, sweeping and immense, soaring beyond the boundaries of our understanding. So how do we get this book? Why do we have this uh, three pages or so, three to four pages in our Bibles well, the backstory to it is somewhere around 52 AD. So about 25 years, uh, 20 years after Christ died on the cross and rose again and ascended back into heaven and left his disciples to be his apostles and to begin to lay the church. The apostle Paul was on his third missionary journey and in that process stopped at Ephesus, the bigger city, the trade center, and spent two to three years there. Longest stint that we know of at any particular city. And proclaimed the gospel and then fleshed it out and taught it and established some really solid foundational truths for the faith of all those people in what the Bible called Asia. We would call it Turkey today. Colossae was about 100 miles from Ephesus. So if you're walking, that's a good, almost a week of your time to get there one way. But people would come, and it appears that uh, Epaphras, who's going to be mentioned, you'll see him in verse 7 of chapter 1, and some beautiful descriptions about his ministry there. And you'll see him at the end of the letter as well. But Epaphras apparently as far as we can piece it together, traveled there, perhaps spent considerable amount of time there, hearing the gospel, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved, becoming equipped as a follower of him under the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and then going back to his hometown, Colossae, much smaller agricultural community in, the, in a river valley where there were some other towns like Laodicea that we might recognize, uh, and some others, and there began to share that good news of Jesus Christ, and 
A handful of people responded and believed. And so in some way, within that time period, he planted a church. They began gathering as believers, probably within the first few years of his conversion. Which brings us to two very, very quick lessons. One, the gospel is powerful and works mightily when it is believed. In individuals' lives, but also powerfully in churches. And secondly, more than big elaborate strategies and expertise, planting a new church requires faithful servants of God who see the need for each other to gather and worship together in order to faithfully live for their Lord and to seek to obey all that he commands, including the Great Commission. So, in these first 10 years of this church in Colossae, some threats and dangers began to come in. Paul's not super specific about them. Uh, there is a million theories about what those are. Uh, I think more significant than naming them is looking at the characteristics of them, which we will do when we get there, and Paul dealing with those. But surrounding that, Paul is really, 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 really pointing people as he wrote this letter to um, Christ. So I skipped a couple of lines in the story. This is why I don't tell stories. One of many reasons why I don't tell stories. Uh, so as these dangers came, it appears that Epaphras then traveled a thousand miles to Rome, to Paul in prison, to tell him what was going on. And Paul, pastoral heart that he has, then wrote what we have in front of us now in a different language, but here is his message in his words. And it's absolutely stunning how practical, applicable, and meaningful they are to us. It's as if this letter was written last week and was titled Lincoln. It's full of truth. So, got to go faster. Main ideas. I'm already, oh, we're going to be here till dinner. We'll just go out to Fox's Street from here. <laughs> a few themes. So I wrestled with how do I title this? You can already see the, from the slide that we put up how I landed on the third one. But I think there's two lines particularly. Chapter 3, verse 11. It's so short. It's tucked way into the last part of the verse. It's easy to miss. It's at the end of a paragraph. But it's a profound truth that Christ is all. Just those three words. And then in all who believe in him. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, maybe the more known one, perhaps your minds went to this right away. Christ is to be preeminent in everything or uh, supreme, if you want a simpler word there. So we're going to think primarily throughout all of this of the preeminence of Christ, the all-sufficiency of Christ, and as a sub-theme under that, what Paul is ultimately pressing at is, you've had a great start. Here's how you reach full maturity in Christ. By the end of this letter, he has laid that out. Let me give you a few outline ideas very quickly. First of all, a very simple one uh, that just was my own wording or thinking about this. Um, so it almost breaks up into chapters. I don't think it's perfectly clean and neat, but for the most part, chapter one and a few verses into chapter two. Nope, go back one. You are on the right one. Um, 
are one section, and then chapter two is mostly one section, and then the rest of the letter is kind of another section. But I, broke, I saw it as the local church is talked about at the beginning, and then at the very end, in all of Paul's identifying of other workers that are greeting them, the church is talked about universally. And in between there, Paul writes about the Christ, he addresses the confusions, and he gives the commands. So that's one way to think about it that I think is more helpful than perhaps the ESV uh, subject headings or main theme ideas. And then if you could go to the next slide. Here's a couple others. Sorry if it's not enough. It'll show up in Tuesday night's email or I can send it before that if you can't wait that long. Chapter 1 captures the heart of the gospel. Chapter 2, the threats to the gospel. Chapters 3 and 4, the effects of the gospel. Chapter 1 about the Savior. Chapter 2 about Satan. Chapter 3 about the, and 4 about the saints. Chapter 1, Christ must be understood. Chapter 2, dangers must be discerned. And chapter 3 and 4, Christ-likeness must be developed. But the outline we're going to kind of use, I think, is one that I'm borrowing from John MacArthur when he preached through this and then put his commentary together on it. And I just like the emphasis on Christ's preeminence. And then for us illiterists, declared, defended, and demonstrated in lives. So... You'll get a lot more of that third one, and there's lots of subheadings on that, under that that we'll work through. When I sent out the version of Colossians in Tuesday night's and Thursday night's emails, that also has this outline with greater detail to it. And there's some at each exit if you want to pick up a copy that has those outlines that might help you as we work our way through. Today... It's going to be everything we've got to work through the first part of verse 5. But let me read that now to you. Would you follow along praying for God to use even this seemingly simple greeting and opening part of his prayer? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Father, this morning we ask of you and even beg of you for you to do for us by the Spirit of Christ in this room and in your word what Jesus did for his followers that day he rose from the dead. And that is to interpret the scriptures and the things about you so that our hearts burn within us. So would you open our minds that are so weak and ignorant to understand you and your revelation better? Would you open our eyes that are so blinded without your help to see Christ more vividly and clearly and powerfully? And would you open our hearts, so healed by your grace and yet still so broken, to love you more and more. We ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. So, uh, ESV titles, verses 1 and 2, a greeting. We're going to follow the outline that I um, alluded to earlier, that Christ's preeminence is now going to be declared. I'm going to assert uh, that it goes all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, uh, as Roman numeral number 1. But for the next two to three Sundays, we'll just be in this opening section of his preeminence is declared 
in the gospel message. So, typical greeting by Paul. He identifies himself as an apostle. And one thing to note that I forgot in the story as well, as far as we know, Paul never visited Colossae. So everything's coming through, as far as we can tell, the mouth of Epaphras and others, perhaps. So many of his letters, when he writes, he's firsthand witness of those things. Here, this is testimony. So he speaks of hearing of their faith, probably through Epaphras and others. So, but think of that even as he writes. So he identifies himself sometimes in Scripture as a servant uh, or as a prisoner, but here he identifies himself as an apostle, partly, probably, because there is false teaching about how to mature in Christ and things that people, followers of him, should be doing that actually are not helpful and good. And so Paul asserts his authority as an apostle here, one of just 13 men in all of history, following Christ going to glory, who were given the task to carry out the massive transition after the gospel is carried out in Christ's death and resurrection to found churches, to proclaim the gospel and found churches that would preach the gospel, would baptize new converts, would grow and establish as churches in each of the communities, and then these apostles would write much of the New Testament. So Paul is fitting within that as God is using men and means to found his church in truth. And Colossians is part of that. And note also that it only takes five words before Paul identifies that his apostleship comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not, and it's by his will. It is not because Paul sought it. It's not because he earned it. It's not because others appointed him. It's because God chose Paul before the foundation of the world to carry this out. So Garland just says, fittingly, God assigned him a task, not just a status. And Ephesians opens early in its letter with Paul's declaration that Christ works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then Paul notes that Timothy is with him. Timothy, whom in other places he calls a son, such as in Philippians 2 where he says, there is no one I have in all the people who helped me, in all my journeys, in all the believers I've come across, there's no one quite like Timothy. He is genuinely concerned, in this case, for the believers at Philippi. But that was Timothy's heart, very much like Paul's. Uh, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Paul's going to mention many others in the closing of the letter, but Timothy is up front. Some think perhaps because he helped write this, that perhaps it's part of Paul's disciple-making of Timothy and teaching him how to convey truths because Timothy is going to have two final letters of Paul written. Uh, we think that the, last, the second letter to Timothy is the very last thing that we have in the scriptures that the apostle Paul wrote. But it's just a demonstration that the apostles didn't do ministry alone. Jesus didn't do ministry alone. They always used a network of servants uh, to establish churches, to proclaim the gospel, to be faithful to the Great Commission. And it's part of what we have a blessing to be a part of as well. There's lots of people who have prayed and lots of people who invested before any of us ever got into this building. And there are people who don't go here who have prayed faithfully for us.
God is using those servants, most of them unknown to us, to answer their prayers, to work. And uh, so, yeah, praise the Lord for Timothy's. Most of the time, the Timothy's don't even have a name for us. But it's been a joy also, on the flip side of that, to be a part of how God has worked in churches in Lincoln, in Albion, Nebraska, in Jerusalem, in Ecuador, in Laos, in Siberia, and in other parts of the world as we've gotten to join in that. Verse 2 then turns to who the letter is to. It's always interesting to see what words, what titles, what identities God or Paul chooses to use, which is ultimately God, the Spirit of God leading Paul. But he calls them saints. Now, this is their spiritual standing, we might say. It, it's God has bestowed incredible favor and you have been elevated. Or Ephesians 2, God has raised us up to the heavenlies. So we hold a special spiritual standing. No matter how old we are in the faith, these are relatively new believers that are being written to. But sainthood is given to every follower of Christ immediately, not attained by good works, but simply as part of how God sees us. Set apart and holy ones. And then secondly, he identifies them as faithful brothers. Like you have joined in the work of the gospel around the world and you are doing it faithfully. This is their spiritual relationship, their camaraderie with each other. God has made us brothers and sisters. That is a supernatural bond, as we talked about last week on the one and others, that is given to us immediately. But the rest of the phrase might be the most riveting or most helpful for us because it introduces us to a little prepositional phrase, in Christ. And, and there's a play here. These saints and brothers are in Christ, but they're also in Colossae. They're in two places. They're in a physical place, and they're in a spiritual place. And Paul is noting both of those. But far more significant is their spiritual location. Kent Hughes calls it one of the deepest and most joyous of mysteries. Sam Storm speaks of it this way. No matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually will never change if you're a child of God. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. But the reverse is different. It's precisely because you are in Christ that wherever you live and work and play, you make an impact, you carry an influence, you make a difference. Your spiritual identity as one of Christ must control and characterize how you live wherever you live. And then a very, very common line, remarkable how common it is. We'll note that later. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Two tremendous needs that every human being has. Grace and peace. Two phenomenal gifts that God gives to every believer and follower of him. Grace, which is God's just undeserved, unearned, I'm just out of the goodness and generosity of my heart giving you abundantly. And Piper notes that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. And I would say that's true for us today as we begin to study it. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writing to the Christians. Paul here is celebrating that grace has begun the day that they were saved. Perhaps even you might say the day that they began to hear the gospel and understand it. 
and God was drawing them to himself. And now he's praying. He's blessing them and saying, I pray that it will continue and even increase. The Christian life from start to finish is just filled with God's grace. And secondly, peace, well-being, wholeness that comes from a sense of God's intimate presence and power and purpose that restores our relationship with him. Paul's going to talk about peace in a couple other places in this letter. thought it might be interesting just to note those now. In chapter 1, verse 20, when he's given a clear gospel description, he speaks of the blood of Christ's cross is what makes peace with God. And then the command in chapter 3 to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So we saw that the word of Christ is in verse 16 is supposed to rule or dwell in our hearts. In verse 15, the peace of Christ is supposed to rule in our hearts. In other words, the peace of God he gives us is to control our entire being and our entire body. It comes to each of us individually, and yet a characteristic of all of us is that we have an incredible peace given by God that nobody else in the world has. Next section, or uh, moving, and so you'll see in the ESV that there's a heading here, Thanksgiving and Prayer. I think it's appropriate and helpful. If we're following the earlier context, we just are continuing in how Christ's preeminence in the gospel is demonstrated. But we're going to see it through Paul's prayer, which I think you can argue goes all the way down through verse 14. That's where the ESV marks kind of the end of that. It has thanksgiving in the first paragraph, verses uh, five, 3 to 8, and then verses 9 to 14 are uh, prayer requests. Um, and so it'll take us a couple of Sundays to work our way all the way through this. For now, we'll dive into these first couple of thoughts, um, which are all that we'll be able to handle for today. But the Colossian, Ch Colossian church is one example of how the gospel works. First Street Bible Church is another one. And it's a beautiful picture of what God begins to do when people believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in his son, and begin to live for him. Paul starts, as he so often does, with thanksgiving. He just notes what God has already done. Doesn't seem to matter how much he's going to address really hard things later in the letter. He just starts with, man, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful to God for you and what he's doing in you. It's a beautiful line. I've never met you, but I love you and I love what God is doing in you. And I praise his name. I recognize that it's him and not you. And so the stories of God's redeeming grace in the early church were powerful, but they should continue to be as well. Every baptism testimony we hear, every conversion we hear, uh, when we hear of God working in other churches in powerful ways, there should just be this incredible celebration of the power of the gospel to transform lives and do things. Paul's going to note three particular works of God that he is grateful for in them that God has begun to generate and give them. Number one, their faith in Christ Jesus. That's the starting point for all of us. It's a degree or level of faith 
where one is so completely convinced of what the gospel proclaims, announces the news about it, that it is absolutely real even though it cannot be seen and it can be trusted with one's whole heart. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith from God's perspective. There's an insurance about faith, the things that you're hoping for, so note the hope there, and a conviction even though you can't see it. Now we can note that everybody operates by faith. Every human being is operating by what they believe to be true. So the point here is that not all faith is by any means faith that saves a soul. In fact, even within churches, there are many who are there trusting in other things, whether it's their attendance, their partaking, their faithful working within the church, their relatively good life, at least when they compare themselves to others. They're what we might call almost Christians, faux-Christians, pseudo-Christians. It's a lot of characteristics that look really biblical, but there is not actually a faith in Christ, and they are not actually in Christ. They may be in a church that belongs to Christ, but they personally are not in. Ken Hughes reminds us that salvation does not come by believing in belief or even in a set of doctrines or a creed. It comes by believing in Christ. So young and old, here, are you believing in Christ Jesus? In the person, not the ideal, not just the stories or the words, but in Christ as a person. Do you know him? Do you know that you are in him? Is that a reality in your life that affects everything in your life? But the beautiful thing is, if you will cast yourself wholly on him, he will save you. Last night for a while I couldn't sleep. But what went over and over and over in my mind was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul notes this faith in the Colossian church, but he doesn't want it to just be there or static. So if you look, peek ahead at chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. He says, you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and, now note, established in the faith. In other words, I want that faith to, to grow ever more solid and strong so it doesn't waver. He's going to talk about that. It doesn't go off in directions away from Christ. Keep rooting it into Christ Jesus and what he has done as the means by which you will have eternal life. Next, faith, when it is genuine, will always produce love. Faith and love go together. They are a couple. Love is the first and foremost fruit that the Holy Spirit produces, Galatians 5, when saving any human being. Faith brings love. And this love is notably different and deeper than any love that we see anywhere else on earth.
you go to the next slide. So the Apostle John was in the room at the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed his feet. And Jesus says this to the 11, because, well, the 12, Judas will soon be gone, but he's there. A new commandment I'm giving to you that you may love one another. We looked at this last week on the love one another, or the one another's. Just as I've loved you, wow, what a statement. You're to love one another. And that's the way all people will know you're my disciples. There will be a marked difference. You will have love for one another that will be divine, supernatural, not real. But that same apostle wrote these strong words when he wrote his first letter. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, no matter what they profess or claim. Nor does the one who does not love his brother. We know, we have assurance that we have passed out of death into life because the evidence is in our love for the brethren. And then he asserts again, he who does not love abides in death. Garland speaks of this love as a force within that seeks release by giving itself to others. I think that's a great description. Not a vacuum that selfishly craves to be filled. True disciples of Christ, inspired by love, intend every action to bring benefit to others. And the third one, and I must speed up, though I have the most notes on this one. Because faith and love come out of hope. It's because of the hope of heaven that you have faith and that you have love. This is this confident certainty of the fulfillment of all the promises that the gospel gives us about the future. It's a longing anticipation of the full realization of our salvation. Already, God has done so much for, for us. Just before Easter, we looked at those 40 or so gifts of salvation that God gives that we're enjoying and relishing even this moment. And yet, Oh, what is to come, what is to come is beyond what we can imagine. So in, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul's going to describe it as, he's going to tell us that the hope of glory is Christ in you. That's what fills you with the hope for the glory that's coming. And even though chapter 3 here doesn't use the word hope, you can see it. Seek the things that are above, heavenly things, Again, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Hope keeps us focused on the eternal things. Hope keeps us focused on the bigger kingdom than the one we live in. Hope keeps us focused to go forward until the day that we get there. C.S. Lewis, relatively well-known quote. A continual looking forward to the internal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. Piper, it's possible to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use. My problem is, I've never met one of those people. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. Numerous other scriptures that speak of hope that I'm going to 
Passover, but they'll be in the email for sake of time at this point. But hope is what spurs us on. Hope fuels faith. Hope fuels love as a result. John Piper on this point. The Bible portrays that a strong confidence in the promises of God, that's hope, and a passionate preference for the joy of heaven over the joy of the world frees a person from worldly self-centeredness, from paralyzing regret and self-pity, from fear and greed and bitterness and despair and laziness and impatience and envy. And in the place of all these sins, hope bears the fruit of love. It is not heavenly-mindedness that hinders love. It is worldly-mindedness that hinders love, even when it's disguised by a religious routine on the weekend. Only one thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven. Doing the works of heaven. And heaven is a world of love. What a beautiful combination of three things. You probably recognize them from 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. All of these abide. Paul says in 1 Corinthians to them, the greatest of these is love. Here, he says, the hope you have is building a beautiful faith in you that's building a beautiful love as an expression of that faith. Faith looks upward, hope looks forward, and love looks outward. And the three of them fuel each other toward God's purposes. More on that next week when we pick up the rest of chapter five. Very, very, very quick reflections. They're all gonna be on the screen. I'll try not to talk too long about each one. Always we want to look for what does the Bible tell me about God? What does the Bible tell me about Christ? And we're only five verses in, but they have already been mentioned seven times. They saturate Paul's thinking. They permeate him. He connects everything to God, everything to Christ. And so God should saturate our own thinking. He should be the source, the reason why we're doing things. He should be the means by which we do them. And he should be the goal, the purpose for which we do them. Secondly, in considering Timothy and his role here, partnership in gospel ministry is so important. God so often, the great majority of the time, uses teams, often multi-generationally like Paul and Timothy are, to labor together and each brings their strengths to the table, to the ministry, and adapts for the other's weaknesses. So those of you who are Pauls in this room, older perhaps in age or more mature in your walk with the Lord, look for ways to bring Timothys along in the faith. Bring them alongside you in serving the Lord. Especially when you sense that your time is drawing nigh. And those of you who are younger in the faith, the Timothys, Look for the Pauls, see them, admire them, appreciate them, and go ask if you can work alongside them or walk alongside them and learn all you can from them, especially as you sense their time to serve the Lord may be nearing an end, as Paul was. Third, grace and peace are interwoven gifts of God, highlighted so much. In our own minds, may they become more prominent. 16 of the 27 letters of the New Testament put those two words together, those two blessings of God. 
Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, Revelation. All ask God to bring upon the people being written to grace and peace. And it's in our benediction that you'll hear today as well when we ask the Lord to lift up his face and make it shine upon us and be gracious to us and lift up his countenance and give us peace. Fourth, just let Paul's thankful prayer be a reminder, especially if you're a competitive person, which I am. That when God is doing great things in other Christians and in other churches, we're not jealous critics of those works of God. We are rejoicers who thank God for doing what he's doing in other places, even if he's not doing it where we're asking him to do it in our own places, in our own lives. Let's rejoice everywhere that the grace and peace of God work. And fifth, ponder, would you, the importance of faith, love, and hope all of them working in a triune way. Um, and think about it as, is First Street Bible's reputation among other churches and believers and among this neighborhood and the lost and anybody who knows about us or Googles us or whatever, visits by here one time, is our reputation one of a faith in Christ Jesus? That they know we're following him and we are devoted. Is our faith growing stronger or stale? Are we fueling it? Does it encourage other people? Does it influence all we're doing? Secondly, would others say of First Street that our love for saints, for followers of Christ, is commendable and notable, or just average or so-so, or not very good? And what is our reputation about our hope? Do they know how much we long for heaven? Do we speak often of it with people? Is it part of our own hope? Or would we rather not die for a while and hold off heaven because life on this earth seems so good right now? Are we living for a hope that is laid up for us in heaven? Father, we thank you for this start to Colossians. We thank you so much for this letter that you preserved for 2,000 years so that here on the other side of the earth, we could study and hear what you said then that relates perfectly to what we need now. God used Colossians in First Street Bible Church in mighty, transforming ways. May we all see Jesus more preeminent. May we all know Jesus to be more sufficient, all sufficient for all of our needs. May we all be more like our Christ because of this study, we pray. In your beautiful name and for your glory's sake, amen.